Hello and welcome to St. Paul's United Methodist Church's Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Mike Agnew and it's great to have you listening to our sermons this way. If you're not a part of the church and you'd like to learn more, you can find out more by going to our website at www.cherokeemethodist.com. Now, two weeks ago, we started a new sermon series focusing on the letters of Paul. And we haven't gotten into the letters yet because first we talked about who Paul was and a little bit about his life, his story. And then we had graduation Sunday where we focused on a particular section of verses of his letters. But you know, Paul's letters were some of the most inspiring and some of the most controversial, right? You got 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, but then you've also got scriptures about women being silent in church. And so we're going to be spending the, the rest of our time in this series looking at his letters, one letter each Sunday. And we're not necessarily going to get into the nitty-gritty of every single verse, but we're going to be looking at overarching themes and main ideas, and then we'll also take a look at some of the more mysterious sections of his letters. So we're just going to do them in order that they are in the New Testament. His letters are not writ, uh, organized into any particular significant order. It's mainly longest to shortest. So his longest letters are in the beginning. So today we're looking at Romans, perhaps one of the most well-known and most quoted of his letters. It's also the longest. A lot of people really like Romans. Some people feel that it gives the best systematic treatment of his theology. And some people say that it gives a great presentation of the gospel. And in one sense it does, although I think that sometimes we simplify it a little bit too much. As we get into this letter, I, I want to remind you again that we want to respect the distance of the Bible. In other words, we want to respect the fact that this comes from a culture and a time that's 2,000 plus years removed from us. As such, there are things that we are not going to understand. There are things that we cannot know for certain. And we have to realize that we're reading other people's mail because these letters were not addressed to us. God can speak to us through them, but they were not addressed to us. They were addressed to specific churches for a specific time, dealing with specific issues, some of which, quite frankly, we don't deal with at all. And so there's not much relevance. Now, can there be something like when he's talking about whether or not we should eat meat sacrificed to idols, right? An issue of huge concern today, right? No, not at all. But as, as he talks about things like that, are there things that we can still incorporate into our current time? Can God speak to us through those verses? Certainly. But we have to realize sometimes that they're dealing with ancient issues that in some cases we're not dealing with right now. So, as I said, some people love this this letter. Some people view it as kind of like a sermon or a textbook uh, so that they can take verses out of context and, you know, use it to make a point. But we can't do that. You know, it's still a letter to specific people for specific reasons. And so each idea in the letter builds upon another to make a larger point. So sometimes we have a habit of cherry picking verses to suit our purposes, whether good or bad. But either way, it's probably not what Paul intended. Uh, in fact, I will be a little bit more definitive and say Paul never intended for us to rip certain sentences out of his letters to condemn a person or a group of people, in Romans in particular. Uh, it was never meant to take a certain section of his letter out to condemn a person or a group of people, because as we'll see, his main point of the letter was the exact opposite of that. All right, so let's dig in. 
Romans is a letter that's written to Rome, of course, right? That's pretty easy to figure out. But Paul hadn't been to Rome yet. He wanted to go, but at the time of the writing of this letter, he hadn't been there. But he ultimately would as a prisoner. So in chapter 1, he starts off saying that the wrath or the punishment of God is being revealed against all the ungodly people of the world. Wow. Now, what do you think of usually when you hear about ungodly people? Well, you think of other people, right? Not yourself. And his audience would have as well. They would have thought about the non-Jews or the Gentiles. The wrath is being poured out because even though the reality of God should be made plain to them, they exchange the glory of God for images. This, of course, refers to idol worship, which was a big deal back then. See, for most religions of the world, in fact, pretty much every religion at the time, the gods were represented by statues and such. And, you know, in many cases, it wasn't that they actually believed the statues were their god, but that they represented their god. But this was a practice that was strictly forbidden in the Jewish faith. So people of other religions would worship these idols, and they would worship at shrines and temples and engage in various activities having to do with the worship of these gods, sometimes sexual activities of various kinds when it was fertility gods. And so Paul writes that God gives them over to their sinful desires and they serve the created things rather than the creator, again referring to idol worship. So you see what what the main sin is here that he's condemning in Romans 1? The sin that he's condemning is idol worship and all of its associated practices. So we want to be careful about taking certain verses out of context from Romans 1. Uh, Everything is related back to idol worship. So then at the end, in verses 28 to 30 on, he really piles on the hatred and the condemnation, right? I mean, he talks about all the different ways that they sin and that they're horrible people. He lays it on real thick, and you can hear the audience cheering on, you go, Paul. I mean, who doesn't like a good condemning sermon directed at other people? (laughs) But then we get to chapter 2, and he turns the tables on us. He says, who are you to judge? You do the same things. Now, he's not saying literally that they do the same actions that the idol worshipers do, although probably in some cases that's true. But he basically is saying when you condemn others, you become a hypocrite because you break the law too. Right? It's kind of like Jesus talking about getting the plank out of your own eye before you look at the splinter in the other person's eye. Basically, the message is, you have your own stuff, so deal with it and mind your own business. (laughs) But that's so hard to do, isn't it? We like to mind other people's businesses and dictate what they should or should not do and even legislate it if possible. But when we condemn others, we're just condemning ourselves because we become hypocrites. Paul talks about the circumcision of the heart. Circumcision was an outward sign of the faith. But he's saying it's not about the outer stuff that matters. It's what's going on inside of you that matters. Paul continues in chapter 3, talking about the function of the Jewish law. And he says, you know, that, that this law given to us by God through Moses doesn't save us, but it served as a temporary thing to make us conscious of sin. But this law is fading into irrelevance now that Jesus had come with a new law. Sometimes we forget how radical this thinking is. This represents a radical rethinking of the foundational doctrines of the Jewish faith. 
No wonder Paul was so controversial and, and attracted those who disagreed with him. So he sums up the point that he's been building up to making in the first three chapters of his letter. And what is the point? His point is that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. There's no difference between Jew and non-Jew, for all have sinned and all are saved by Jesus. Now that's controversial, right? The whole foundation of the Jewish faith is that they are the chosen people. They are the favored people. How's that work if everybody's favored? In chapter 4, Paul continues to make supportive arguments from his using his, the, their Jewish father, Abraham. And then in chapter 5, he gives the triumphant conclusion. Jesus is victorious. He forgives you of sin, and you are blessed. As he says in verse 18, just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all live. This sounds like great news, and it is. The problem is we like it when we think of it for ourselves and people like us, but we don't like it as much when it's about those we don't like. The Jews didn't care for the Gentiles back then, but there's no exception. So there's this humbling kind of equalization here where we realize we're all on the same footing with God. Then in chapter 6, Paul concludes that since this is all true, we should no longer live in sin. Right, Because something is mastering us in our life. It's either righteousness, righteous living, godly living, or it's sin. The old life or the new life. But we do it in response to what God has done for us, not as a prerequisite. Then in chapters 9 through 11, he deals with a new dilemma. And that is, what about the fellow Jews? You know, most of the Jewish people rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So Paul deals with this. Are they no longer people of the promise? Are they no longer called by God? Are they no longer in God's good favor? And he spends three chapters trying to work out how it is that both Jews and Gentiles will be saved. When you read it, it kind of seems like he's thinking out loud as he writes. And it's a little tricky, but here's his theory. His theory is that because of the Jewish rejection of Jesus, the non-Jews are coming in. Israel is stubborn. Or in other words, their heart is hardened and will be until the full number of Gentiles can come in. Then the Jews will see and they'll become jealous and they'll come to Jesus as well. Right now, there, there are problems with that idea. And I should note that as we read his letters, Paul, like most people in his day, expected Jesus to return in their lifetime. Right. This is why he says things in other letters, such as that if you're not married, you should remain unmarried. If you're married, remain married. You know, this is assuming Jesus is coming real soon, so just stay in the same station in life that you're currently in. Obviously, Paul was wrong about that. Jesus did not return in his lifetime. And later on, when he realized that this wasn't happening, he would address that as well. But, you know, Paul, for a lot of his writing, expected Jesus to return in his lifetime. Something that, quite frankly, every generation has thought, and so far, every generation has been wrong. All right. Then in chapter 12, he gets into some practical stuff. Practical things about holy living. Again, it's a response to what God has done for us. It's not a prerequisite. But he goes into a lot of practical things for living. Uh, you know, being in uh, companionship with other people as much as possible, things of that nature. And then he ends the letter by giving a lot of personal greetings to people and things of that nature. But before we conclude, I want to look at one particular verse or section of verses that is oftentimes taken out of context, and it can be controversial. 
And that is Romans 13.1, where Paul says to be subject to the governing authorities, basically because their power comes from God. Now, oftentimes we take this out of context to encourage blind submission to one's favorite leader. It's usually only used by those whose favored candidate is in office. Uh, so usually you won't hear this verse mentioned very often when someone's uh, candidate is not in office. So how do we deal with this? How do we make sense of Romans 13.1? Well, there are different lines of thinking on this. One line of thinking is based on the very true fact that letters in the ancient world were very public. They had to be carried or delivered by a certain person, and they were read publicly. So it's, it's very possible that Roman authorities could have heard the letter being read. And so without needing to cause trouble, Paul possibly wrote this in there so that the Roman authorities would not think that there was a rebellion at hand. I'm not sure what I think about that, but it's an idea. Another thing we want to look at, though, is we want to look at the verses right before it. In chapter 12, verse 14, it says to bless those who persecute you. And in verses 18 to 21, he goes on to talk about, about how we want to bless those who persecute us. We want to be kind to those who are evil. We want to overcome evil with good. We want to be kind to those who are evil because when we do, we are heaping burning coals on their head, metaphorically speaking. And then comes Romans 13.1, be subject to the governing authorities. Right, so that kind of paints it in a whole new light. See, oftentimes we forget that the chapters and verses are not divinely inspired. They weren't there originally. They were added later to make it easier to look things up. But they can lead us astray sometimes because when we, we go to read scripture, we usually start with a chapter break, right? We usually assume that they're changing their subject at the chapter break. And sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's not true. And the words before it can inform how we make sense of it. But whatever is going on here, whatever he's trying to say, we have to remember that Paul's life was marked by multiple imprisonments for civil disobedience, doing the opposite of what the authorities dictated. And tradition says that he was killed by the state. And you don't generally get killed by the state by doing what they say. So we can't always know exactly what authors were trying to communicate in Scripture due to our distance from it. But whatever he's trying to say here, there's more than meets the eye because Christians most certainly did not submit to the authority of their government at all times. And very few saw their government as good. I mean, the author of Revelation, John, refers to Rome as a beast for crying out loud. And so as Christians... I think that what Paul is saying is we want to live in harmony with everyone as much as possible, but there's also a place for peaceful protest, realizing that ultimately we hold our citizenship in the kingdom of God, and our allegiance to the kingdom of God should supersede allegiance to any earthly kingdom when they conflict. So now that we've taken a flyby survey of Paul's letter to the Romans, what do we take away from it as a whole? Well, if I had to pick one thing, I think it would be the majesty of grace. A grace that include, can include anyone, regardless of their past or where they come from. Paul is a walk, was a walking testimony to that. As he writes, for all have sinned and all are saved by Jesus. It's humbling when we realize that we're all on equal footing and should make us grateful for ourselves and also hesitant to judge others. For God's grace is working out for the salvation of the world, including you and me, and people not like you and me. Amen. God bless and have a great week.